0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is... June the 29th, 2017, this is episode 2034, of the Survival Podcast. And before I tell you what we're going to talk about today, I want to drive home a reality for you. Um, the 4th of July is on Tuesday, and uh, I'll save more on this for a little bit later with an announcement, but I will I will be taking Monday and Tuesday off. It wouldn't matter because the 3rd is Monday. What that means is that tomorrow will be the last podcast of July, it'll be the expert council Q and um, I am going to run a, re- a rewind show for you guys on Monday, and I think I'll just not do anything on the Fourth of July. I'll just take the day off with my family. But um, the, what that means is that this, you know, this week is the last week we'll get together. And when I come back on Wednesday, we will be in July. Big deal, Jack. A month has passed. No, six months have passed. Twenty seventeen is half over. We are now as close to Christmas, actually we are now closer to Christmas than we are far away from Christmas, because it's the 25th of December, right? So we are closer to Christmas than how long ago the last Christmas was. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But you know what it means. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all, and it's up to us to be advancing our lives, because if you don't advance your life, there's no sliding scale you're going to move backwards. That's how it works. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Keep up the quest for liberty and freedom and designing the lifestyle that you want in your life because if you don't do it, life will work against you. That's how time works. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about whole bunch of stuff from your calls. This is a listener call show. I have a couple of calls that are like very similar. I'm going to play them as like one thing and answer back on them. It's about spending cryptocurrency using a debit card type, type, type technology. I have a real world story on a vaccine side effect that medical science just said, that's not a vaccine side effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have more on the repair of damaged land. This time land repair, uh, repairing land that was damaged in storms. We have um, a question on dog training, and a person wants to know, should they train their dog in German? Because someone told them they should, because that's what pros do. Yeah, some people don't know why they say what they say, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll actually talk about why professionals tend to actually do the whole training in German thing, or... Some other language. And why you really shouldn't care unless, well, you have a very specific reason for it. Uh, Next, uh, dealing with weeds on your electric fence. I'll talk about that. Dealing with blight and cucumber mosaic virus in your garden. To lease or to buy a vehicle? Or is there a third option? And no, in this case, when I bring up the third option, it is not the new subscription type services we've been talking about with, you know, access over ownership. This is a totally different way to look at things that I think a lot of you might appreciate. Um, I have a question about my wicking beds and how I actually design them and what the the soil medium in them is. So I'll tell you all about those. And I have a question on the difference between business owner and self-employed, subject I talked about in Tuesday's show. A little bit more clarification on that. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at directive21.com. Again, directive, and then the number is two, one. Uh, Dot com. guys you know prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food water shelter security and energy and then shoring them up that's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell in that effort ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done Everything, And I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two today. I have one from David Verne, A Desert Robin Hood. And I have Ab Ubre Condita, Livy's History of Rome. I'm going to start with The Desert Robin Hood by David Verne. Tacfarnius was a Berber tribesman from Numidia who served as a Roman auxiliary. After learning Roman tactics and strategy, he deserted and gathered a small band of robbers in a province in North Africa. Starting out by robbing travelers and raiding farms, they soon grew in size. Tacfarnius organized them into cohorts and equipped them like legionnaires. The Roman garrisons failed to prevent the raids, and more rebels and tribesmen began to join him. Soon he had an army of 30,000 men. He wasn't an ancient version of Robin Hood anymore. He had become a rebel general, threatening to take over North Africa. The Roman governor, Marcus Calminius, had only the 3rd Augusta Legion to counter the threat. Managing to scrape together 10,000 soldiers, Tacfarnius believed that his superior numbers and Roman style of training would win and abandon the hit-and-run tactics he had been using and prepared for open battle. Calmilius wasn't a tactical genius, but he had a steady nerve. The Romans easily defeated the overconfident rebels, but Tacfarnius disappeared into the desert. The Senate awarded Cal- uh triumphal decorations. My take by David Verne. A triumph was the highest honor a Roman general could receive they were awarded by the Senate for victories against foreign enemies. The general would be drawn in a golden chariot at the head of his soldiers, bringing with him the loot and prisoners of the campaign, and a statue would be erected in the forum. Riding in the chariot alongside the general was a slave, and his job was to constantly whisper to the general, Remember, you are but a man. They were only given to members of the imperial family. Triumphal decorations, which is what our friend Marcus Calminius got, were for other generals, included everything except the parade. In this case, it seems to have been given prematurely. The battle was won, but Tacphinius was still at large. Okay, so here's my thing. Like, this Tacphinius guy, like, first of all, we have these like these ideas that, like, since somebody was trained in the military, that they can put together a unit and go back against the military, and especially with superior numbers. Well, this guy wasn't a general... He didn't really, you know, he knew tactics, but he didn't really have the ability to discipline men. And that was one of the things that made the Romans so damn deadly in this time frame. Because you're talking about shields and swords and spears, mostly, for your weaponry. So men that would stay disciplined, stay together, risk life and death, and didn't break. Didn't break and listen to their generals and had good generals won the day in these battles. Things start to change pretty soon, but that's how it was. Well, they don't change. That doesn't change, but the tactics begin to change as technology begins to create new ways of killing men. Um, My other thing, though, is this Tacfarnius guy was doing pretty good until he abandoned what was working. When you're going to abandon something that's working, test it. Don't go all in on it. It could cost you your head. In this case, he didn't manage to save his head, but he lost his army, at least for now. Alright, so the next one, Ab Ubre Condita, Libby's History of Rome, contributed by São Paulo Ben. This history of Rome was 142 volumes long, though only the first 45 volumes survived and original for modern day. The books covered everything from the legendary landing of Aeneas after the Trojan War and the cities founded by Romulus up to Macedonian and other Eastern wars taking place until 167 B.C. in the volumes we have today, and up to 9 B.C. in the volumes we lost, according to other ancient writings and abridged versions of his works. My take by Southpaw Ben. As with yesterday's segment, it's always interesting to see what God and fate allows to survive to the modern day. Like Jack was saying yesterday, our descendants should have much more complete record of our lives than we did in the past. However, fate is fickle is fickle being, and to quote Dan Carlin, history seems to be a bunny hop dance where humanity will take two steps forward and then one step back. So one day in the far future, the hard drives and computer data we store in our lives might be magic, ancient technology that only a few scribes can understand and are rushing to transcribe on papers to the average man when we take the next step back. So that could be like a catastrophic failure of technology. I could put it another way for you. We should just leap forward to where a lot of this stuff, if it doesn't seem worthy of modernizing even if it's here, it may be unreadable unusable, no one will care and then some people will come back and try to find all these old hard drives laying in garbage dumps or something and put the data back together what do I mean by that? do you remember if you're like as old as me when floppy disks were around and they were actually floppy the first floppies, not the second floppies the second ones were hard but they called them floppies they were little squares, remember the big squares like you stuck in your Commodore 64 Right? Yeah, and you could, they flopped around, and they go, and go... reading it. Remember those? Okay, let's add some really cool data for you on one right now, and I handed it to you. How many of you have a technology capable of getting the data off the drive? Now, it isn't that you can't go find it. There's still, I'm sure, some of the old, old floppy drives out there, and the, the mid-sized floppies or whatever you call the small floppies, the hard floppies, whatever they call those. Um, I'm sure there's still computers out there that will read it, but how readily available is it? So here's what I want to ask you. I'm not going 100 years for it. 20 years from now. 20 years from now, if somebody finds a box of floppy disks that were cutting edge technology in the 1980s, right? So we're talking about 50 years from the period that that's what everybody used. How hard, I don't think it'll be impossible, but how hard do you think it will be? To find anything that would read them. So, is it reasonable to think that even that badass 16 core processor driven hard drive that's in your badass computer right now may not be that important to the future? And will it actually be readable? What about all those, you know, web servers out there with all this data, all these, all this information? If the future generations don't value it, It could just be obsoleted and lost. Something to think about. Maybe we're not as permanent as we think, even in the permanency of human beings. That's a thought. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. So go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Earpan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bobwell's Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. For you any seeds, terroir seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. All right, with that, let's get into your first call today. These two calls are so similar, I'm going to play them back-to-back and come back with what I see is the weakness in this technology. And I, I think both of these got to kind of acknowledge that weakness. But it also has some other things that I want to talk about with you um, with the crypto space as a whole. uh this is a good lead into that.
1: Hey Jack, this is Kurt from West Tennessee. This is about a way to use Bitcoin easily every day. Visa offers a debit card called the SHIFT card, which works with your Coinbase account. You swap it anywhere debit cards are accepted and get a text within a few seconds that your Coinbase wallet has been charged. I've used it for about a year and had no problems with it. I love the show, but when you're ready to bail out of Texas and of the greatest place on earth, West Tennessee will be waiting. I'll be with you, Jack. Hey, Jack. My name is Spencer. I had a comment for show 2029 the guy called in wondering
0: how he could purchase groceries with crypto and I don't know if he was specifically asking about Dash but I do know there are services for Ether and for Bitcoin where it may may just be a stopgap but you can have a wallet that is linked to a debit card and use that debit card and they instantly sell However much Bitcoin or Ether is required for the transaction, and
1: dispense it just over the Visa network. So
0: that might just be a stopgap, but I think it's pretty interesting. So thanks for time. Okay, so there is uh, this does work, and I've talked to people that use it, but there's an issue here that I wanted to kind of point out. And I also wanted to point out how it, affected, it affects me when I decided to, to get myself out of Bitcoin, um, which in spite of the rally, I still think was the right move. Maybe moving it to Bitrix and going to Ethereum might have been a better move considering the, the crazy rally Ethereum's on. But I went to fiat currency with the, the, the money that I had for Bitcoin. And that's because I see a huge drop coming in Bitcoin. I could be wrong. Remember, I could be wrong. Um, but I, I, I think I, I see a huge... Drop in Bitcoin coming around the end, somewhere near the end of July. There's like there was this big profit taking, and then I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about the soft fork that's coming in uh, August first, and then at some point there'll be a mass exodus, whether it's in the fiat or other cryptos, it doesn't matter. I think there'll be a mass sell-off, and that'll drive down the price of Bitcoin much. I think it. I again, I'm guessing here, but I expect it to go lower. Than, um, than it recently did. And as they ferret out, what's going to happen with this fork? Are there going to be two Bitcoins? Which one's going to be... Once it's it's known, I think there'll be a massive rally in whichever side of the fork is the winning side of the fork. But I, I think investors hate, hate uncertainty, so I got out of the way. So... What does that mean though? That means that this year I will pay well in this year's tax return uh, for that'll be paid in, in the in the, the winter, I will pay capital gains tax on the gain on that. I'll have to declare a basis and I'll I'll have so here's one of the weaknesses of this. The IRS's tax guidance on cryptocurrency is it's not a currency, it's a commodity. They they don't want to view it because they view it as a currency, then what you're talking about in these cards is just a conversion. It's a currency conversion. And unless you're specifically executing trades like Forex for profit, then it's just a currency conversion. You just spend it. But since they've labeled it a commodity, it has to be spent every time you would use that card. Coinbase would record a sale a sale of Bitcoin to fiat and then a spending of said fiat. Now, by, by the IRS's tax guidance... If I have one Bitcoin, and it was worth $500, and when it got, you know, this is a long time ago now, right? Let's say it got up to $1,000, and you wanted to sell me, I i, I don't know, uh, a gun, a private sale of a firearm, no problem, and I paid you one Bitcoin, now worth $1,000, the IRS says, by spending it, by spending it, and exchanging it for a good or a service, I have in effect sold it. Now, I can move it around to my other wall. It's all I want. But when I, when I give it to somebody else, now, how could they track this? It all depends. And in many instances, they can't. Okay? But by technical uh, reading of the policy, you're then supposed to say, well, I experienced a capital gain of $500 and pay a capital gains tax on that gain. If you're using a card like the shift card, every single transaction is a sale. And each one of those sales results in either a capital gain or a capital loss. And it's very difficult to figure out. And the accounting way to figure it out would be to amalgamate all of your purchases of Bitcoin and come to a basis average cost. And then at that moment you spent it, did it gain or lose based on that basis average cost? It's insane. It's insane and it's complicated, and it's a concern for me with Coinbase because the IRS is heavily pushing them for information. I personally think in the end what the IRS will settle for is trade confirmations. Like if you have a Edward Jones brokerage account and uh, or an E-Trade brokerage account and you log in there today and you buy Ford stock and five days later you sell Ford stock, at the end of the year, e trade will send you a statement that says you sold Ford stock. Now it usually includes the basis on it. It used to be that you declared your own basis, and I'll just say that plenty of people cheated with that. Alright? Okay, I'm just gonna say that's that happened all the time. And the IRS kind of cl- clamped down on that, and on some levels it made it easier because you know what your ba- you can look at your statement now and it says what your basis was. So you know your gain. Okay? But it also makes it impossible to cheat. They send a copy of that to the IRS. Just like your employer sends a copy of your W-2. Just like if you do contract work, then the person you contract for sends a copy of the 1099 they send you to the IRS. That way they can do an accounting. I think that's what Coinbase will come out of this doing. They're not going to release all the records. And I don't think the court's going to order them to release all records. I think it's entirely too broad. But since Congress hasn't passed a law saying what they have to do, I think what they're angling for is some sort of a statement. And it might be you know, people that have sold over $5,000 or something like that. This is much like if you have a PayPal account and you do over a certain number of transactions or dollars in PayPal as a merchant, they send you a thing called a 1099K. And it shows all the sales you made, how much they were for, and and, and, and what have you. And that they send a copy to the IRS. So I think what would happen is you'd get this big, long shit list from using this card eventually out a coinbase to the IRS saying these are all trades you made that could be as little as five bucks. Okay? And I think that is from an accounting standpoint very, very complicated. And it's going to take some sort of a service that will eventually calculate your basis at the time of spend and tell you what it is. And tell you what your gain or loss is by making that purchase. Because you may find that there's times when it shows a loss. And you might want to make a rather large purchase at a time that there is a loss. Because then you can claim the loss. And if you really wanted to spend your cash, well, that's okay. Now just buy what I... See what I'm saying? Now just bought it again. But now I get to see... This is thinking like rich people. And there's really no service that I know of that does this yet. But a broader subject I wanted to breach with you guys today. I keep talking about the utility of the token with all these altcoins. I saw one today, and it was like Primus or Pribus or Pribus or or some crap like that advertised on a site. I thought, well, I'll look into it, so maybe it'll give me something interesting to talk about. It's this new some sort of electronic bank in Europe, okay? And you can buy into it, and they're going to do all these wonderful things and manage your finances and your healthcare. and anybody in Europe will be able to get an ID card for it and blah, blah, blah. It'll change the world of finance and economics and all. And what do I always say? They're going to do an ICO, and they're going to sell a token. What is the utility of the token? So you're going to do all this wonderful shit. What does the token do to enable it? And in this case, the answer was, like many of them, not a damn thing. But the token had a great utility. What they said was the token existed as a smart Ethereum contract, meaning it will automatically do what it's supposed to do. You can't cheat if it's written correctly. okay? And it will give 20% of the entity's profit to token holders. We would call that a dividend in the world of stocks. But it's much better than a dividend because... They can't sit around and vote and say, well, we're going to reduce the dividend or increase the dividend or not pay a dividend this quarter. There is a profit or there isn't. There is a profit. 20% dividend gets distributed by share count. Awesome. So I thought, well, I probably don't want to buy into this, but I'd like to see what this what their ICO process is like. I could do some inf- you know, research for you guys and check it out. So I clicked the thing to sign up. And it said right at the bottom, tick this box before you fill the rest of them out, and it says... I certify that I am not a US resident. Why? Because the FTC would say that that is an illegal solicitation. That is an, you cannot do that. You can't do that. You gotta protect people from stuff like that. So you can go out and buy a coin that has no freaking value whatsoever except a promise in a white paper. Government, that's okay. But if they actually promise a return of even the potential of a return in some direct manner, we are the only people on planet Earth that can't buy it. Because the regulations that deal with American citizens are so complicated and complex. So what's going to be interesting, because we're the big we're obviously the biggest market in the world financially is will someone figure out a way within these ICOs to do a return of profit to the initial investors beyond appreciation of the token through something like this in some way that loopholes the Federal Trade Commission? It will be interesting to see. But yes, once again, your government is protecting you from one of the more sane things that somebody doing an ICO could promise, a return that would basically effectively be a dividend. Cause your government has to protect you from, you know, things like you making a decision about how to spend your own money. Anyway, with that, we got another one here, uh, two, like two part or two calls in a row, same person though, on the MMR vaccine. Very interested to hear this one and let you guys hear it.
2: Hi Jack, this is Nicole from Mill City, Oregon. I have a comment about the MMR vaccination. I My 12-month-old uh last week got the MMR vaccination and two days later ended up in the ER with over 104-degree temperature. Uh, the morning, she woke up that morning with a fever and I was able to get it down. It was just a low-grade fever. When I called the doctor during the day, they said, oh, well, it must be because of MMR, that's pretty likely, low fever. Well, then, as it progressed and got higher, they said, no, it can't be due vaccination. That's not normal. She must have picked up a virus at the doctor's office. So then we went to the ER and they said the same thing. Oh, she had to have picked up a virus at the doctor's office when she got her vaccination, which is funny because she had, had no previous, no no symptoms of any virus. She just had a fever. Whenever her fever would go away, she was fine. When they finally gave her a ton of Tylenol and got her fever down, the next day, never spread fever again. But this will never be documented as being from MMR vaccination because they're documenting it as her having a virus after, while well, she was at the doctor's office, she picked up the virus. not Nothing to do with the MMR. I just thought it was pretty funny, and you guys just had a, a thing about the MMR on Friday, so I thought I would comment about what we just went through a couple of days ago. Thanks for the show, Jack. Bye. Hey, Jack, this is Nicole from Oregon again about the MMR vaccination. I forgot to tell you that we are stretching out our daughter's vaccine schedule. She received only MMR and Hep A. She has been vaccinated with Hep A before and never had a reaction. So that is why I think the reaction was to the MMR. Just another case of a reaction to a vaccination being documented as picking up a virus at the doctor's office where she just happened to be getting vaccinated. (laughs) Thanks again, Jack. Great deal. Bye.
0: I can't tell you how many stories I've heard like this um, through emails and communications from the audience, through direct personal contact, and through documentaries and, and other things, and sometimes with far greater consequences. And the medical profession just simply saying, oh, it's nothing to do with the vaccines, or, oh, don't worry about it, it's a minor side effect because they're not experiencing it. And I want you to understand these nurses and these doctors that say this stuff. They're not evil. They don't hate you. They're not part of a giant plot led by Bill Gates to depopulate the planet. They believe their own bullshit. They have been trained to believe their own bullshit. They have gone to school to be taught this bullshit. They have been tested on this bullshit, and they have become proficient experts at spouting this bullshit. And I'm going to tell you that my wife, who was a nurse for over 25 years, was very good at this bullshit until she retired. And the minute she was not enveloped in this bullshit, and the minute she stepped back and thought about it and looked at it without being directly connected to it, so it's not her that's being attacked when the vaccine side effect is being pointed out, she said, oh, it's all bullshit and you can say whatever you want but we're talking about a woman that gave vaccinations for 25 years and now says man i i wish i would have known enough to tell parents to consider things and stuff like that um the caller also said they're spacing the vaccinations out and they only gave two vaccines here and they had given the one before and therefore they know the reaction was to the MMR that's not 100% but it's pretty damn good and it's also why I don't like MMR that you should be able to get that vaccine as separate vaccinations and when Wakefield's information came out about it, which many people call fraudulent, even though they don't know what it said, right, well he's a charlatan, he was being paid he wrote two paragraphs that said, hey in our study of this IBD uh, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS we noticed some correlation that apparently was there, however the numbers are too small to be definitive and it may not mean anything, further research should be done. You see how stupid that is? Do you see how big a steaming pile of bullshit that is? Do, do you see how going on a witch hunt for somebody, that that's what they that's what they said? And then when the, the shit about MMR comes out, and the CDC cooking the books on their own study, they say, it's all about Wakefield's fraudulent study. Yeah. Let's talk about side effects like this, like a high fever or something. Let me explain something to you. If you read, if you frickin' read, if you take your frickin' little eyeballs and read the frickin' vaccine insert, you will see that extreme high fever is one of the potential frickin' side effects from this frickin' vaccine. And then you've got a medical professional that administered a vaccine noticing the exact side effect from the drug manufacturer that says it's a side effect and go, well, it can't be. Not, well, it might not be. Oh, it can't be. It's just a virus. How the hell do you know that? You don't know that. You don't know jackedly shit, but they're not bad people. They don't read the inserts. Ninety-nine percent of doctors and nurses have never taken the inserts from the vaccine they put into people and read them. They don't know what the freaking side effects are. And they're told it's mild and it's not worth worrying about because the risk of the illness is... It's all freaking steaming bullshit. And again, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But I believe in, and I, I don't think we need to give our children as many vaccines. And I want you to think about this. One of the side effects that can come along with extremely high fever, that's on the insert, and don't tell me it's not, until you read the insert and you'll see the freaking word. I can't tell you how pissed off I get. I mean, you people that say that's not true. Read the insert from the manufacturer is something called encephalitis. Yeah. Do you know what that is? That's where the freaking brain swells up inside your freaking head and your head freaking hurts because your brain is bigger than your cranial capacity to encapsulate your brain. It puts pressure on your brain. This could be very mild or it could be very severe. Got it? it? can be moderate. It's the time when a child's brain is developing. Do you think swelling a kid's brain up when they're that little for just a little while for something to say was mild to moderate might give them cognitive deficiencies in development? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know, but I'm not going to say, well, it's not possible because that's what I was trained to believe. And I think the average medical professional today is doing society an extensive disservice because they won't even take the time to consider opposing opinions and they won't even read the vaccine insert for the thing they're shoving into the body of an infant. I challenge any single one of you out there practicing medicine at any level, from LVN nurse all the way up to a surgeon, if you in any time are recommending or administering vaccines, every single one you recommend or administer to read the entire warning from the drug manufacturer, From point to point, from stem to stern, and really think about it. And if you won't do that, don't give vaccines because you're willfully ignorant about the risks and you can't give your patients an honest risk assessment to make a decision with. And you shouldn't be practicing that type of medicine if you're unwilling to do it. I know I'll get hate mail. You know what? I'm going to say a word you don't want to hear, so if you listen with your kids, you might want to skip about 30 seconds here. I don't give a fuck, okay? I don't. I don't give a fuck that I'll get hate mail for pointing out what should be painfully obvious to anybody with enough intelligence to hold a medical license. You don't give a drug or administer a drug without knowing all the side effects and being able to honestly advise your patients thereof and to accept the fact that one of them may have occurred after you freaking did it. That's all I have to say on that. We'll move on to something a little more cheerful. How about some damaged land?
1: Hey, Jack. I got a question about how to rehab uh, former forest land for, like, uh, like grassland for resale. Uh, details. Um, I'm in southeast Georgia, and uh I have about a quarter of an acre of my property that was just totally ransacked by Hurricane Matthew last year. And I just finished up clearing out all the lumber. And I basically have a quarter of an acre of stumps and former forest land. And uh we're looking to be at this property for about another year before we buy our homestead. And I'm trying to figure out how the best way to um, get some pasture into this former forest slash stump land. Before uh, before we sell in about a year, I've thought about either mulching or bringing in soil and planting plant grass, or bringing in a stump grinder. Just curious to know your thoughts from a real estate perspective, and uh, I appreciate any kind of uh, any kind of feedback you might have. Thanks.
0: Given that it was forested, it's probably in in from a nutrient cycle standpoint in pretty good shape to grow you know grasses and and forbs and clovers and stuff that we would think of as lawn or pasture and, and what you really want here is kind of a lawn because uh, it's short term and when somebody buys something and it's there's a spot there and it's got grass and clovers or whatever it, 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 well, i can do whatever i want with it but when it's all garbaged up then people have this like i don't know what to do or if it's a bare dirt so the other thing is though if somebody wants to maintain it as pasture, as lawn, as grass, as an athletic area, whatever. Then they're going to have to mow it. So one of the concerns I would have were the stumps. So you might think about stump grinding or a small excavator, if they're not that big, where you can grub them out and do something with them. Honestly, burning them uh, once they're out wouldn't be terrible, and spread spread that potash out. And then just a good seed mix for your season and climate and be able to somehow keep that watered until that seed mix germinates. And a quarter of an acre is not that large. I mean, that's something with, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of sprinklers and hoses, you could even probably set it up in a few zones and just go out there and turn a valve and do that, you know, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon for a couple weeks. And then if you don't want that stuff, you could throw it all on Craigslist and sell it or something. Um, But if you don't keep that seed wet, you're not going to get good germination. It's going to bake. And I would look at getting this ready and then planting it's Georgia, right, I think is what you said. So, you know, you have a pretty mild winter. So I'd like at planting this like in, in mid-September to late September when the the hottest time of the year. So you're going into, you know, any grass is going to do really well until you get to super cold temperatures, you know, hard freezes and stuff like that. And I would just do some sort of a grass and clover mixture. Uh, talk to your local feed store or ag-, ag store or something like that about you know what what, what grows well in your area uh, just as a cover, a, g- a good cover and something that 's going to be perennial or you 're going to seed it again in spring with something perennial to keep it looking good until you sell it i wouldn 't go through any um, heroic efforts since you 're not keeping the property, and you have no idea what the next landowner is going to want to do with it. Uh, the big thing you didn't tell me, like how much land do you have, how far away from your house this is, how complicated this is going to be. Personally, if it was me, I'd restore it to a woodlot. You know, a lot of that stuff may cop back up on its own and all, but I can see why you would want to not do that in a short-term play to, 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 to move the property out. But I would also look at it this way. It would, and this is anything that you're going to do to any property ever. How much less will the house sell for if you do nothing? Or how much harder will it be to sell the house if you'll do nothing? If you really look at it and think to yourself, you know what? I might get a thousand bucks more for the house, but doing all this shit's gonna cost me two thousand dollars, you don't do it. Unless you really think it's such an eyesore that'll ruin the marketability of the property. But in any decision, so like if I'm looking at like I'm gonna put in you know granite countertops in my kitchen and I can put in nine hundred dollar granite countertops or I can put in three thousand dollar granite countertops, if if I'm gonna stay in the house for ten years, I'm gonna put the granite in and I like the best. Because I'm gonna live with it. If I'm gonna sell that house tomorrow or next year, I'm gonna to say to myself self, will I get a better return out of the three thousand dollar granite countertops? In other words, if I think the house the, the price of the house will be exactly $3,000 higher with the $3,000 countertops, and all I get is greater marketability. And I think if I put the $900 countertops in, I'm going to get $2,000 more for the house, and I'm going to profit $1,100. I'm going to go with the $900 countertops because I like money. Don't be hating money. That's one problem a lot of you people have. You hate money. You have to make decisions from a mathematics standpoint with some level of intuition and best guess. In this case, I think you're probably right. I think if it's as tore up as it sounds, it'll probably look a lot better if we clean it up and just get something growing on the ground over there. And again, I would go grass clover mixture, talk to your local suppliers about what's going to do best, plant probably in September, and grub out or grind out at least the stumps that would be the most problematic for someone that was going to take a lawn tractor or whatever and mow it. Because you hit a stump, (sighs) and I'll tell you another thing, just a little side here. If you're not gonna grub out or grind stumps, and you're, they're gonna be a problem for your tractor, they're not little ones where you can get the chainsaw right to the ground and just buzz them off dead level, and the blades will go right over them. If they're gonna be a problem, leave them high. Leave them high. So if the grass is even a foot tall, you still see them. You know why? You can drive right around them. It's not a big deal. It's them low ones that kick your ass and break your break your tractor motor, okay, or break your tractor rotor. You don't I don't like those kinds. So leave them high so you can see them and then you can mow around them. Uh, With that, let's take another one. This one is on training dogs.
1: Hey, Jack. This is Carlos in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I've got a question on dog training. Uh, Wanting to know, is it uh, okay to train a dog in English, or is it better to train them in German or another language? Uh, Details. Just got a lab puppy, started doing some basic training, and a friend of mine said that it would be better to do it in German because that's what all the canine units do. Is this good advice or bad advice, or does it even matter? Thank you.
0: Before we address the direct question, I would like to give everybody out there a kind of a universal piece of advice for when you receive advice like this. There's a magical question that whenever anybody offers up something like this that sounds a little like, well, you know, they sound informed, but it doesn't completely make sense. The question is why? So somebody came to me and said, well, you should train your dog in German, Jack, because that's what all of the canine units, first responders, etc., and soldiers train their canine units. They all train them in German. Well, that's true. Do you know why they do it? And most people that'll tell you to do it don't know why. Which means you don't really need their advice now, do you? Right? So I'm going to tell you why in just a second, but you can see that, well, you know, well, uh, because, uh, it's, it's easier for the dog to understand. Or it's a more uh, commanding language. Well, if they do it, it must be right. Well, see, if you don't know why, I don't want your advice. Your advice might even be right. But I'm not taking your advice if you don't know the reasoning behind it. And that's in anything. Well, you should use a manufacturer's part in that repair instead of an aftermarket part. Well, why? Right? I mean, it doesn't matter. And sometimes there's a good answer for that, and sometimes there's no good answer for it. Well, I'm putting brakes on the car, because it needs brakes, and I'm going to drive it for four months to sell it, so I don't give a shit if they're genuine GM parts now, do I? So you got to know why. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why is this person who is well-meaning and giving you this advice that's, you know, you should buy this clothing, or you should do this, or only use this kind of ammunition? Why? And if they don't have a very reasoned understanding that they're able to convey to you that you can actually think about, hmm, well, that makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> Their advice isn't worth square root of F all. Right? Okay. So why do they do this? Well, on some levels it's done still because some departments and agencies actually per- purchase pre-trained dogs or partially pre-trained dogs. And since the main dog used is either Malinus or the German Shepherd, many of them come from Germany and were trained in German. If you want to spend a lot of money, you can actually buy like a one-and-a-half-year-old German Shepherd you know, service or guard dog that comes with an instruction manual in German. And it tells you, like, if you want the dog to do this, say that, and the dog will freaking do it because they're that well-trained. So there's a little bit of that, but that's not really why. It's not because the German language is rough and guttural and short words, and it's easy for the dog to understand, but that is a good policy. You should train your dogs as much as possible with very different-sounding, one-syllable words. Sit, stay, up, right? Things like that. You might train them with the command load up to get into a vehicle or something like that, and that's two syllables, and that's okay, it's two words, but that's you keep it short and brief, and you want words that are distinctive. That's not why they do German. A well-trained dog will often respond to commands no matter who's giving them. Okay. So I've had very aggressive dogs that were also fairly well-trained being aggressive with me. And I'll say, sit. And that dog will sit almost like he can't, like, oh, shit, why did I do that? I want to be mad at this guy, but he told me to sit. Stay. And I say, stay, 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 like like your cowardly, you know, wuss. But you say, sit, stay. If that dog knows those commands, a lot of times that dog will walk right up. Now, he might still be dangerous to you. Gives you a chance to deal with the situation, doesn't it? Now, if the, the canine officer is trying to get you to crawl your ass out from under a car, sends a dog under there to get you out, and, there's, and using English commands, you can use said commands and give that dog pause and maybe do something like stab it or injure it or escape while that dog takes pause, Okay, that's not good. So most people that are hiding under a car trying to get away from the cops with a dog barking at them, being told to come out or they're going to get bit, don't speak German. And so they don't know how to interact with the dog. And they actually want these dogs, even though a handler will specifically have a dog, you don't make a gun so that only one cop can shoot it. And you want standardized guns across the ranks so that if if this guy goes down and I'm out of ammo and I crawl up to him and yank his, his gun out of his hand or out of his holster... I can run it. Well, that's how you want dogs too. They don't they don't want a dog that won't listen to anybody else. Those dogs deal with a multitude of people. So the dog is predisposed to actually listen to anybody that sounds like they're in authority, and all dogs are, that uses proper commands. I've had dogs flipping out of me on the other side of a fence and go, hey, sit, and that dog will sit. And a lot of times the dog will just go chill out. Like, oh, okay. Well, if he did that and he knows he knows what he's supposed to tell me. I tell people when they're here and they're like for events and they're wandering around the property, if Charlie sees you and starts traveling, the first thing you need to do is call him and tell him by calling by his name. Here, Charlie, come here. And that's gonna chill him right out. Because hey, hey, that's right, there's people here. It's okay. I'm supposed to be off duty, and he knows my name and he's calling me over, so I'm gonna go get a belly rub. But if you start screaming, shit, this dog doesn't understand, he's going to eat your leg off. That's why they do that. Because the the criminals or the people that they're going after can't interfere with the dog's activity because they don't know the language. So your friend is make, giving you advice that he has no logical reason for. It. Here's why I think you probably don't want to do this. Let's say you did speak, I, I speak fairly fluent Spanish, and my dogs actually know quite a few commands in Spanish, but they also know the English equivalent. I don't want my dog to require an instruction manual to operate. I want my dog to listen to my wife, to my grandson, to my son. You got it? So unless all of those people are involved in that training and all of them know these languages and these, say, code talk, trade the dog in English. Sit, stay, come, give me your paw. You know, by the way, let me tell you a very important command. Lay down, and play dead or roll over to get a dog on his back so you can inspect him for any kind of injuries or damage a lot of the things we think of as tricks actually have very prudent purposes give me your paw a lot of dogs, and I'm working with Lucy on this because I didn't get to raise her from a puppy really don't like their paws touch give me your paw gets them associating putting their paw in your hand with being okay because you might need to inspect it for an injury or remove a thorn from it or something like that just another little addition there Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one is on electric fences and weeds. Hi, Jack. This
2: is Justin from Florida. My question is how do you effectively manage weeds and grasses along an electrified fence line? Details, my family and I have 22 acres in Central Florida, Zone 9A. I'm looking for a solution to keep the grasses and the weeds off my fence line so that it can maintain its proper current and voltage. In the past and even currently, we use glyphosate sprayed along the fence line every two months or so to kill off the vegetation. I'm looking for a better way so I don't have to spray a chemical that I really don't like using. From a time standpoint, it's just not feasible to try and weed eat along all the fences. I'd love to get your thoughts or any thoughts from people in a similar situation. Thanks for all you do.
0: Well, in the words of Bill Clinton, I feel your pain, um, and I have a much smaller circumference to deal with, and it isn't that big a deal to weed eat, but it's a matter of staying on it so that it gets done. Um, on, on the scale you're talking, and many people dealing on a scale that's larger, here's here's my thing about Roundup. I don't like it. In many ways, I hate it, but I won't hate on somebody for using it. And spraying a fence line with it to keep weeds off of an electric line, and only doing enough for that, is 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 likely the most reasonable and legitimate application of glyphosate there is. And it's not likely to do a lot of harm to the rest of the ecosystem. Um, when you see people do this, if they're not out there just like spraying like this, like fifty foot wide swath. If they're actually spot applying it, like they're walking the fence line and just, or they, you know, I don't spray glyphosate, but I have a big um, spray tank, a 35-gallon spray tank. I put it in the trailer behind my tractor, and I'll dump like a gallon of garret juice in there uh, and a gallon of um, uh, liquid kelp uh, and maybe some other things, maybe some uh, compost tea or something like that, and I will drive around and spray my trees in the spring with that to kind of tonify them as they're coming into, you know, bud break and all. So I've seen people do that. You take a tractor or a four-wheeler, you got your spray tank, and and what you see is everything dies right there in that line. You don't see a lot of it crawling out and killing other things. So I don't want to use Roundup, but if I were in your situation, I might break down and do it if it was all that worked. The best weed killer that I've ever found that is, you know, an organic-type weed killer that has a lot less... Uh, of the concerns and problems of something like Roundup does, is white vinegar with soap, just plain old dish soap. And what it does is the is the soap spreads out throughout the vinegar, and when you spray the vinegar on the plant, the soap causes the vinegar to stick. And I have a video of a guy doing it. You can see how quickly it works. Here's the problem with it. It doesn't last but three or four days, and you start having regrowth. Works really good for three or four days and then you start having regrowth. And I just don't know that you'd want to spend that, you know, be out there every fifth day, you know, or at least every Friday doing it. So I don't have a great answer for you. I, I really don't. I think in the future, you know, this problem will be, you know, solved by a little robot, rumba style, like vacuum weed eater. It will just drive along and just, and it'll be, you know, it'll have a certain clearance of the wheels. and It'll just stay right under that wire, and it'll, just, and it'll run, you know, you know, it'll run a thousand feet and take a break and charge back up with the solar battery, and it'll just keep going and it'll just drive all the way around your perimeter and keep your fences cleaned off. Uh, I think that is a product that even people that are willing to use Roundup would like. So I think the market will create that product, but it doesn't exist yet. Um, the only other piece of advice I can give you, and I give this advice for multiple reasons is oversize your charger. So if I have 25 miles of wire, I'm going to put like a hundred mile box on it. And for instance, I have about a quarter mile of wire and I have a 25 mile box on it. And those higher performing, uh, chargers are not immune to this problem. But when a little piece here and a little piece gets there, they still tend to give a really, really good shock to any critter or person that touches them. And they tend to, the smaller little bits of grass and stuff that first start to get on them, they tend to kind of, you know, when they they get in contact and it zaps them, a lot of times it kind of gives them some dieback and all, and it gives you a little more time in between having to get out there and do it. That's the only advice I have on this. Anybody that's dealing with this, in a way that does not involve using a chemical like glyphosate, please let us know. And, and instead of emailing me, I'd love if, if whoever has that information go to the Today Show and do it in the comments on the blog so that other people can see it. If you email it to me though, I will put it out. I, I'd like to, you know, have a good answer for this one because I don't. And it's one of those times that I'm I'm not a purist. You know, I'm not an ideologue above pragmatism. And glyphosate's bad stuff, but. All of the problems that we have from it started when they started genetically modifying crops to be sprayed with it. When it was used as originally intended, which was spot applications, uh, in location specific applications, or, you know, I've even seen people, I've seen Mark Shepard use, use, use glyphosate. Mark Shepard, you know, king of restore, restoration agriculture. I've seen him use it. And, and it'll be in like a new installation. Well, you use it to knock everything back and then go in a, a set time after that application and plant your new trees. And the trees are just fine. Glyphosphate has a pretty quick breakdown period. It's not a very persistent herbicide, which is why it requires reapplication. It's why they modify the crops so they can spray it multiple times while they're growing it and you eat it. See, there's where the big problem is. Those are my thoughts. Again, if somebody has a better answer to this one, I don't know if you can train your freaking goats to eat, or goats you can forget about. Me train sheep that know to eat just under the wire to not get shot. I I, I don't know. I I think the Roomba style uh, weed eater robot is the, uh and boy that would what that seems like an idea that needs to happen. You yeah, imagine just for the suburbanite, just to keep you know because when you mow your lawn it's quick. It's the weed eating that takes time. That just seems like something that should be there by now. Let's uh let's take another one. This one is on. uh dealing with blight and mosaic virus.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Nick out of Fort Lee, Virginia. I'm wondering, how can you remedy tomato blight and mosaic virus in a small aquaponic system? A little background. I'm stationed at Fort Lee, Virginia, and I live in an apartment with a balcony. I built an aquaponic system made out of two halves of a food-grade 50-gallon plastic barrel. Uh, currently have an issue with my tomato spreading to my honeydew and squash, etc. It looks like it may be mosaic virus.
0: Thanks a lot. I, I don't think it is. I don't think that it is. I think that maybe you have mosaic virus. Maybe if you have cucumbers, that's most susceptible of the cucubits to it. And it's a, it's a problem that you have to deal with. This is what I think you have. I think you have tomato blight. And you probably have early blight. And it's probably starting at the bottom of your plants, and it's eating its way up to tomato, and it is, a, it is a pestilence. I don't have a good answer for it. Um, Howard, Howard Garrett has recommended using cornmeal tea. Basically, you soak cornmeal in water, and after a certain amount of time, you strain it out, and then you spray your tomatoes with it. And I've heard using peroxide and water helps too, and I've tried it, and I won't waste my time with it anymore. It's one of the few things I've heard from Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor, that just didn't do jack shit. It just didn't work. Um I've come to just accept tomato blight is something you deal with. You keep your conditions as good as possible. It is a fungus based disease. It lives in the soil or in this case in the media of your aquaponic system. It starts in the roots, it's root borne, and it travels up through the plant, and that's why you see it start, you know, your tomatoes looking beautiful up top and the bottom is just dying off. And uh, you know, I hate GMOs, but if they made a GMO tomato and the only thing they modified it to do Was to be blight immune i might grow the damn thing i mean seriously like that would be instead of like modifying it to be sprayed with crap modifying it to resist a, a a a blight would be you know a good thing your squash i'm gonna bet what you see is your squash leaves start to turn yellow and then almost you can see through them and then they wither up and die well, that's probably not mosaic virus, nor is it blight. Cucumber uh, plants, to my knowledge, don't get blight. Specifically, they don't get the blight that is uh, endemic to tomatoes and potatoes, things in that family. Um, you probably have squash bugs. And you probably don't see them, so you don't think you have them, because what they do is they all go down and hide right at the below the surface of your media, and then at times when they're hungry, they all come out probably very early morning, very late evening, and all these little little nymphs from, you know, your, and you probably have, if you look, you'll probably find the big squash bugs flying around, because I have them, I know all about them, and what they do is these little nymphs just get all in the bottom of your squash leaf, and they basically suck out all of the juice out of the leaf, and then they move on. The other thing you might have is squash vine borers, and this is where the whole squash plant will just eventually die. It'll start looking really wilty, it'll come back, it'll look wilty, it'll come back, and then all of a sudden it just dies. And if you open up the vines, you'll find this big white maggot-looking thing in there and stab him in the face and throw him in your tank and let your fish eat him. That's all he's good for. Um, if that's the case, you know your, your plants will die very, very quickly because they'll eat it out. There's not a lot you can do other than mechanical control, starting your plants as early as possible, and planting, replanting squash plants after, because these are very seasonal insect pests. So if you replant late and you have enough time for another crop, a lot of times you'll kind of skip uh, the swarm of those, especially the vine borers. If you have cucurbits, so you're talking melons and cucumbers, uh, specifically cucumbers, that have a very similar appearance of leaves. The leaves almost get rusty looking, but they don't quite die the way that the squash leaves do, where they crumble up to nothingness. They just kind of look worn out and almost rusted, rusted in yellow. That's probably mosaic virus. And that is something that can affect melons, but generally affects things more like cucumber much more highly. It's why it's called cucumber mosaic virus. And it is transmitted by the cucumber beetle. And these are little black and yellow beetles. And so one of the things you do is be on the lookout for them and mechanical control, which means squishing their little brains and shoving them in the fish tank to be consumed. Um, But that's a little bit difficult. Um, The other thing you do is you grow a lot of cucumber and you deal with it as it comes. And again, you can then plant another uh, round because they're pretty quick-growing plants and you can stage in successions. Uh, Or you can use a... Uh, a natural insecticide called spinoced. Spinosad is dynamite on cucumber beetle. And again, cucumber beetle is one of these pests that, if they didn't transmit the dadgum mosaic virus from plant to plant, you wouldn't really care about them. They like to hang out on your computers. They might nibble a little bit here and there, but they don't do any real harm other than they trans- they're, they're like a typhoid Mary. They t- transport that damn disease. So Spinosad may kill some beneficials, but it's pretty good at killing the targeted insects. My understanding is it's not very effective on squash bugs or stink bugs, though, unfortunately. Um, but most other, and certainly cucumber beetles, it's very effective at. So I have a link to a product called Captain Jack's Bug Bomb or something like that. Uh, it's basically just Spinosad. And Spinosad is a soil-borne bacteria, it's completely natural, uh, that's endemic to certain parts of the Caribbean. And initially, when they were growing some of these things that are, you know, very susceptible to mosaic virus, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, to these certain pest insects, including cucumber beetles, which, had, you know, transmit mosaic virus, uh, in these areas, they didn't really have any of the pests. They didn't show up and they didn't cause any problems. Well, I researched it and found out it's this bacterium that's native to the soil of some of these areas. And by simply propagating that bacterium, a lot like Bacillus thungosus, which works on cabbage worms and things like that. And by the way, spinosad works really good on those too. Uh, so you can apply that. And that will probably knock back your, your cucumber beetle a, a great deal and reduce the, uh, the, the furthering of this mosaic virus. If you have mosaic virus on your cucurbits, though, it won't go away. And you just have to deal with it for a time and eventually success into another planting. So what I would do in, in any of these situations where you have these situations is long before that plant completely succumbs, so when you just start to see the blight or the, the virus or the squash bugs, go ahead in your pot and start your next plant so that three weeks later you have this well-started, healthy plant, you can remove the old one and drop in the new one. That's one another way to combat this. Anyway, with that Let's take another one. This one is on leasing or buying a vehicle.
1: Hey, Jack. I have a question about leasing versus buying used cars. I'm starting to look into the market. Uh, I want to get a truck. Got an FJ Cruiser. Um, and I, my question is, uh, does it make sense to uh, lease or to buy when you're very heavy uh, and hard on vehicles? Uh, my FJ has got some dings and some scratches in it. I hunt. I, I don't off-road, per se. But I am active um, in, in that uh, outdoor realm, camping, and, and um, I've got a small five-acre homestead. So I really want to know, you know, does it make sense to lease if you know you're going to have some wear and
0: tear on your vehicle on the body? Um, appreciate the time. Thank you. Let's start out with what really makes sense to lease. I've talked about the terms of my lease on my Forerunner, And um, the reason those terms are so good is because the vehicle has such a high resale value. So... Leasing, I believe, works best on high-resale value vehicles or dirt-cheap vehicles, just dirt-cheap ones. My son's driving an Ultima for $129 a month, and at the end of his lease, he won't get money back like I did. He won't. He won't get any kind. But he can either just get another vehicle, and they'll just erase anything he would owe, as long as it's not seriously damaged or over-mileage, or he can pay a $500 disposable fee and walk away. You see, in both of those situations, high end, high resale value, very, very low end. Your middle tier stuff that doesn't move real fast but has some pretty good cost to it, those are generally losers in the lease world, in my opinion, in my experience. So that's one thing to think about from the first standpoint. Now the other thing. I often say I have a lease on a Toyota. I do not have a lease on a Toyota. In reality, my wife has a Toyota that's leased. Okay, And I don't mean like it's hers and I don't get to touch it or anything. I mean she's the one that drives it every day. And she drives it, you know, really nice and gentle. And She doesn't go off-road at all. She doesn't hunt and doesn't get scratched up than a little bit of nicks. And when you lease a vehicle, they build into the lease, you know, a couple nicks and some scratches and stuff from normal. You know, what would a vehicle normally that's well cared for look like after three years? And that's how they base it on what its value should be when you return it. And a good a good dealership will actually tell you right up front. If you bring this vehicle back under mileage, and in this situation, here's what it'll be worth at the time, and here's what you'll owe on it, and this is what your conversion price will be to buy it, or this will be whatever you owe or you'll get when you trade it in. So you need to know that, and if they can't tell you that, get another dealership. All right? Now, in your situation, I don't know, because I don't know what you mean by dinged up a bit really is. Like... You gotta take a look at your FJ and say, like, if I was turning this back in on a lease, how would it affect me? And then you can still run the numbers and if you have a good honest sales consultant with your dealership, they can tell you, oh, that's gonna cost you thousand bucks, you know, off of your return value. And then you can make a financial decision. It still might be financially wiser to lease, or it might be financially wiser to buy. This is my gut for you, though. <laughs> this is my gut. I think these things you do that are kind of hard on a vehicle are probably not things that you do every week. It's probably hunting season. It's probably a fishing trip or two a month. It's probably things like that. If I were you, if there's any way to financially do it, I would get a vehicle for your daily drive that's your nice, clean vehicle, that's your leased vehicle, that you keep really nice, that you you get all the services done, and you get it detailed a couple times a year so that it stays really, really nice, so that when you go to trade it back in, it's got high resale value, and your lease terms or your purchase terms works out good, and I'd try to keep that FJ, and I'd keep that FJ for hunting and beating around in the bush with. Or I might look for a three or four thousand dollar pickup truck that serves as that type of vehicle, and and, and, and then instead, because here's how you got to look at this: my vehicle that I that my wife's vehicle, if I bought that vehicle, would be over six hundred dollars a month. Leasing it saves me over three hundred dollars a month. That's thirty six hundred dollars a year on a three year lease. Well, I can actually buy a pretty decent beater truck for around four grand, or one year's worth of the savings. One and a half year's worth of the savings. You see where I'm going with that? Now we're making an economically valid decision. And two is one, one is none. What happens when uh, someone in your family needs to loan a vehicle? You loan them the beater, right? Or what happens when something goes wrong and one of your vehicles is damaged or what have you? You know, I know you might have rental insurance and all, but sometimes it takes time to get all that stuff done. Having an extra vehicle around has never hurt my feelings. I'm actually in the market right now, especially since I bought my boat. By the way, I put a little video of my boat out on Facebook today, just uh, if you want to take a look at my little boat. Um, and and part of it is just, I, I don't, you know, since we lost the blue Dodge during the wreck where it was totaled, I don't like not having that third vehicle. I also don't necessarily always like taking my you know 47 foot truck. it's not that big, but it seems like that sometimes in a little bitty parking lots, you know and just a regular standard cab six foot bed truck would be good for that. but backing up some of these ramps around here, backing boats into them, when you have that eight foot bed quad cab truck, it's a pain in the ass. so I, you know part of it's that part of it's having that third vehicle. I used to love having that third vehicle. I'd have family members come into town and like, well can you pick me up so I can rent a vehicle or whatever just drive my truck for a week. Being able to help people out. I mean, so if you can help yourself out and help others out and still come out financially ahead, because here's what I'm going to say is going to probably happen. If you look at the wear and tear that you do to a vehicle and you go financially, this makes the lease option not viable anymore. But the lease option's really better otherwise. There's enough difference many times to pay for that auxiliary vehicle. And let's say you get in kind of hard times. And you're coming up toward the end of your lease, and you can make the payment so you don't destroy your credit, but you get to the end of that lease. Well, it's really, you know, like, well, I'll just walk away from it. But then you need a vehicle. Well, put me in, coach. I'm a beat up old truck, but I'll get you around until then. You create those redundancies. This is lifestyle design, like we were talking about this week. So I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying those are all the things to think about and make sure you're not, whenever you think your choices are A and B, Always look to see if there's a C. Because a lot of times a little creativity, that option C, is the better option for your situation. Let's take another one. This one is on my wicking beds. Go ahead and listen to this. I'll come back and tell you all you could ever want to know about
1: them. Hey, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego again.
0: Hey, man. I was wondering if you would give me some details
1: about your wicking beds. Uh, Primarily, uh, composition of your soil. Um. Also, uh when you fill your
0: beds, how deep is your soil? Because I know that all matters. The composition of the depth determines, you know, how much wicking action you get. And then um,
1: also when you introduce new plants or plant new plants, you know, do you water them in? Or are your beds wicking high enough that you don't need to worry about that? And uh, lastly, uh do you mulch your wicking beds? Anyway, uh, I'd love to hear what you're doing. All right. Thanks, man. Bye.
0: All right, so let's start out with the media. You want really light, airy, spongy, happy stuff. So compost just takes you halfway there. So when I built mine, I went down to the local materials place called Silver Creek Materials. It's about three miles, four miles from my house, and I got two yards of compost. And as I built the beds, I used that compost. I mixed that compost, one part compost to one part perlite to one part very finely shredded mulch and i'm not a bit i'm not big generally on using wood mulch in the soil but wood mulch on top of the soil but if you use very finely shredded light mulch and I, I don't remember the name of the brand but if you go to lowes there is a product they sell as compost and it's pretty cheap per bag i think it's in a blue and white bag if i remember right And you can be like all the other rude people and tear a little hole in the bag and see what's in there, and it ain't compost. It's incredibly finely shredded wood mulch. It's not broken down at all. The reason I had it is I needed some compost real quick, and I didn't have um, the ability to fill my truck up with a, a mass load like I'm talking about here. So I grabbed like eight bags of it, and I brought it home, and I was pissed. Because I, I wasn't rude, and because I, I hate people that do that. You tear the hole in the bag and look at it. Now I understand why, right? So because I didn't tear a hole in it, I had it, and I'm like, I looked at that stuff, and I went, that looks really fluffy. So I made up a mix in a bucket of a third, a third, and a third of those, close to a third, a third, and a third, and kind of just wet it down and felt it and looked at said, Yeah, that's that's going to work. Perlite, don't buy a little bitty bags, you had to go to like a major garden center store, like an ag center store or something like that, and you buy great big giant bags of it, and it's cheap. And you can just do perlite and compost, and I've done that before and it's worked. <clears throat> but the addition of the finely shredded wood mulch that I got, you know, even though that's not what I was after, it, it's the, the soil is fantastic. And it gave some carbon in there for all, you know, because I put worms in all of my wicking beds as well. As far as depth, my wicking beds are built in 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks. Those are two feet high, and the dirt is almost to the top, so call it two foot of of total depth. And my rock base and overflow is set at about seven to eight inches, and that's worked out just fine. Uh, That's about it. I mean, there's, there's, there's not much more to it than that. Okay, next up, when I plant new plants, do I water them in? Absolutely. Very, very heavily. Uh, I, I water them in, uh, you know, basically I keep um, like an old Gatorade bottle uh, out in my aviary and I have deep water beds and wicking beds in there. And I'll just take the bottle and I just dump it into the, the bed with the fish. I've gotten the damn fish to where they're so responsible to feeding and they bit the heck out of me this morning. It didn't really hurt, but it surprised me. One of them got in the bottle when I was doing just that watering in some sweet potato slips. Uh, but I always water in plants, not only because it's less moist up where those roots start out before they get deeper in because whenever you dig any kind of a hole or anything, you create air pockets and by water and you close those air pockets so those roots are actually contacted by moist soil. But I water them in. As far as mulch, yes. Uh, I use wood mulch and that same crappy non-compost compost, fantastic wood mulch. I use about an inch of that and, and, and you can wick a long way up. And if you keep the bottom, and my wicking beds are not no longer, I used to make wicking beds where you had a float valve. And the water came into that wicking bed, and you can do this. And whenever it went down a certain level, it filled back up to that level. Like, you know, like you can use a toilet valve to do something like that. What I have now is basically an overflow. So that the water is constantly just moving really slowly through there. And I have seen incredible results because of moving water. And it's kind of become my go-to now. Well, the ones I did, I'm kind of resenting it now because I had one clog up, and I'm going to have to probably rebuild that one. I built them with a big T, a big one-inch T in them. And then that's all covered with lava rock. And then there's a barrier, and I have a barrier. It's basically a perlite barrier. I love doing it. It works out beautifully. And then the dirt's on top, and that gets a real good wick through that perlite. And it won't float up on you because it's loaded down with you know 17, 18 inches of soil. And I also take some pieces of cloth, like the, the cloth I used in mine is, I had some um, perforated drain pipe that comes with the cloth on it, and uh, it was all scrap from an old job. I pulled all of that cloth off and made like wicks that stuck all the way down in the bottom that came up into the soil a bit to help that wicking action. So that works, but back to the design that I did that I would probably do differently. Um, David did the first one. And when he did that, he just did, instead of a T with a bunch of holes drilled in it, buried in lava rock, and then completely covered so you can't even see it, he did a riser just kind of like you're doing a, uh, an ebb and flow bed with a bell siphon. And they said it was like a constant flow. So you have a piece of 4-inch pipe goes all the way down to the bottom into those rocks, and then you have a piece of 1-inch pipe that comes up with the sand up, and that just sets the height, and there's no T on it. It's just a o- straight overflow. And because that piece of four-inch pipe is around it, the dirt can't get in there and clog it up. Now, here's, here's why I'm probably going to end up converting my beds. This is going to be a lot of work, but I'm probably, you know, as I have problems, I'll convert them one at a time, or maybe I'll do them all in the winter or something. There's a, there's a beauty to that. Even though you've set your rock and your perlite to certain depth, you can bring the water level higher. And if you have that little piece of one-inch pipe down in there, you can reach down in that pipe and you can pull it out And you can drop the level all the way down to maybe an inch. You can take a little bit longer piece of pipe and stick it in there, bring the water up a little higher. You can just take a one inch, if you're using one inch, and any size pipe will work. You know, you decide what your outflow is going to be. Let's say you got one inch pipe. You take a one inch slip fitting, just a straight slip fitting to put two pipes together. And you just stick it on the end and that's going to bring the, the water level up about three quarters of an inch. And you decide you don't want it anymore. You just pull it off, and that lets you play with your water levels. And what you can do with that is maybe you bring your water level up about two, two or three inches, and make it really, really wet when you first plant, so those plants get established, and then you drop it down, and then those plants have a good root system, and they'll hunt that deeper, deeper depth for you. There's all kinds of things you can do playing with that. So that that's some other options. And again. I think that's the easier way to build them, now that I think about it. Now, why didn't I do it, and and why did David help talk me out of it? Um, Greed. (laughs) It's greed. Because that four-inch pipe takes up space that you could have planted plants in. You're giving up that area that you could have been more densely planting. Uh, I think it's a mistake now, and we learn as we go. And uh, so any future wicking beds I do are going to have a straight riser with, a, with a, a, a dirt excluder that I can reach down and change the height of. I've done that other ways, too, by changing the outflow. And if all your beds are level, you can basically set your level with a stand-up pipe. And whatever level you set the place where it to overflow uh, is going to be the depth for all of them. But everything's got to be dead level for that one to work. Uh, with that, let's go ahead. I think i got one more today. Yes, this one is on the difference between entrepreneurship and self-employment. Hey Jack, this is Southpaw Ben Colian. Um, I was wondering what the difference between an entrepreneur
1: and a self-employed person is. I was listening to your show from Tuesday,
0: and I wasn't exactly sure of the is. So it was a little bit confused. Is it the business they're in, or who they're selling to? Like, for example, if there's a farmer, could um, you have like a farmer that sells to, the, to like some company, and that would be self-employed because the company like sells them everything? versus a small farmer who does their own stuff and finds their own customer base would be an entrepreneur, or am I completely on the wrong track? Uh, thanks for the explanation of the show. Hope you have a great day. Well, I would actually put most farmers into the, the, the category of entrepreneur, a uh, business owner, uh, regardless of how they're choosing to go to market with that. It, it really ain't the same thing. The big issue is, are you billing your customers or are you being paid by somebody um, is one way to look at it. Because that has a lot to do with what type of control you have over the situation. So let's look at it from a really easy differentiator. Let's say that what you say is, I'm an entrepreneur, I frame houses for a living. And I say, well, who do you frame houses for? And you say, oh, I, I basically uh, I, you know, line up customers that are you know, general contact, contracting their own houses, and I go out and I take care of all the framing work. And, okay. Or, well, I have a whole crew of guys that do framing work, and I have contracts with various builders, and we come in and do their framing, and we go on another job. There's some weaknesses in that model, but I would say that's pretty entrepreneurial. Okay, okay. If you're the guy that works on the crew and the guy that's setting up the, the, the gig, so to speak, pays you on 1099, then you're in many ways self-employed. If you're a one-man show with that type of operation, you, you maybe have one helper with you go out there and actually do all the work, and you can't scale the business, and you really only have one type of customer Builders and you're subject to their ebbs and flows, and you really can't flex your business into anything else. You just basically have a job without a paycheck. You have a you have a you know an invoice at the end of the day. You're self-employed, and, and I, I thank you for asking this question, and I thank you for taking the time to think about this because most people won't even bother because they don't get why this is important. One of the key things that would tell you that you're an entrepreneur, Look, if we look at it from a straight kind of accountant level question, do you own a company that does business that you take profit from? Or do you just simply do work for people and get paid individually? The more 1099s you get, the problem, I wouldn't say the more. If you get one or two 1099s, there's a high probability uh, and we're not talking about like merchant account 1099 it's like 1099 K from PayPal its all about like legitimate like you work for the person they paid you and they send you a 1099 so they can deduct the cost of your labor. Um, you, you're moving more towards self-employed world. If most of the business that you do, you're directly billing your customers for and they're paying you as a service provider or a product provider, you're much more an entrepreneur. Like I was trying to say in the show Tuesday, I thought I did a pretty good job of it, how much control do you have about what you do? Again, there's a gentleman I knew named Bobby, who was a neighbor of ours in Pennsylvania, that he said he he owned his own business. Well, what do you do? I do drywall work. And all he did was he just had a company that paid him to come do drywall work. Uh, To me, that's self-employment. You, know, you don't have a, a name on the truck right and that wouldn't change it if you did but you really don't you, you haven't even gone that far you're not out basically drumming up business and you can't you can't pivot and do something else if there is in other words if if the per if, if you have a, a single or small group of customers and when they don't have work you don't have work you're self-employed I mean, at that point, I'd I'd have no qualms labeling it and saying that's self-employment. The reason this is important isn't that self-employment is bad. It's that entrepreneurship is better, and it's dangerous in many ways to think of yourself as being an entrepreneur and a business owner when you're really just self-employed. Here's why. You have the same or greater risks of layoff or lack of work as a self-employed person than you do as an employee. It takes a little more justification to terminate an employee. If I have you working for me as a contractor, I can just say, I don't need you today. I don't have any further obligations whatsoever. Another thing would be when you're a contractor and you're self-employed, generally you have a lot of specifications about what you have to do and how you have to do it. Now, you have to have a certain amount of freedom or the government won't let the, the person paying you call you a contractor anymore. And so what they'll say is, like, you, have, you set your own schedule and whatever, but you really don't. Because what the guy says is, I have a contract, and the contract is for, you know, 50 hours of work a week. And here's kind of the parameters within it, and you can make some decision-making in there. But basically, you end up working eight to five, five, you know, six days a week or something like that. You know, that that's how it works out when you're self-employed. If you're an entrepreneur, you can work on your business, not just in your business. That's another way to look at it. The, the, again, though, it comes down to how much control do you really have? And have you actually created a business, or are you just selling your time for money in a format other than a general paycheck? And see, so a farmer, no matter where he's choosing to, or how he's choosing to mark his product or where he's buying his supplies from, he still has that autonomy. He has a piece of land, so he has real property underneath it, or he's leasing access to land, so he has real property underneath. Let's think about a very entrepreneurial thing to do. I want to go into meat, chickens, and pigs. Well, if they, if you go out, you don't have any land, but you go out and you lease land, and all your infrastructure, all of Joel salatin is portable, and you can have a farm brand and do a Schedule F to the IRS for your farm income. You have a farm. The farm is not requiring. The farm is the activity. That's extremely entrepreneurial because you know. You know, and the other thing is, who's paying for everything? If you're an entrepreneur, you're probably paying for everything. So when you travel and you have to fly on an airplane, do you get reimbursed for that? You're self-employed. Do you pay for it and deduct it from your company's revenue? You're an entrepreneur. Does that, I hope that makes sense. And there's some places where it gets hybrid and, and kind of laid over. When I talked about the contracting agency that I ran with Neil Franklin as the COO, we had people that were on our docket of contractors that we would send, like, we need a guy with these you know, five different skill sets with this many years of experience to do this job. And he would bill us corporation to corporation because he had set up an S-Corp or an LLC. And that had certain advantages for him, and technically he owned a company, and we were contracting with his company versus him, but in the end, he's self-employed. He's self-employed. Is your big business bigger than you? Does it make money when you don't do anything? That's that's another thing. So my business really isn't much bigger than me in, in many ways, though I don't want to put the audience down or the community down, so I'm going to come back and explain how I've actually built something that has that going for it. Uh, beyond just me, but when it comes down to it, I'm the guy that runs the websites, pays all the bills. I'm everything from CEO to chief bottle washer. Right? I wash the bottles. I clean up the dog poop. I, you know, I'm the janitor. I'm, I'm the, the, the 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 chief operations officer. I'm self employed, but I hate my boss. Right? <laughs> that's a little humor there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, that's the case. But when I have things like a member support brigade that at 8 o'clock at night somebody decides to join while I'm eating a steak, and I have revenue coming in. On my weekends when I'm off, I have revenue coming in. Because I do reviews, and I have all these reviews out there of all these these programs, and I have an, I'm have i an affiliate with people that I, that I do reviews for. When somebody makes a purchase while I'm in bed at 2 a.m., I have revenue coming in. If I got hurt and couldn't do the show for a month... For some reason, I was so incapacitated, I just couldn't do the show for a month. I'm sure it would hurt my business, me not being there. But there would be a business. There would be revenue. Many of you would say, hey, man, the discounts I get for this thing are worth it, and I'm not going to bail because Jack's a good guy. I know he'll be back or whatever. Um, the reviews that are out there, the site has optimization. People land on the site, don't even know anything about us. and occasionally, it's like, So there's things that would continue to generate revenue for me. There's other programs I have, like my videos that are out on, on YouTube with, with, with the Google AdSense on them that make me four or $500 a month. It's not a lot of money, but even if I don't put any new videos out this month, money will come in. There's a re- residual income stream, or the act- the activity of the business alone creates new revenue. Now you're an entrepreneur. Can you stop working for a week? And still get paid, and not because you have some sort of a PTO or bank time or something like that, or your your you're, you're, you know your your person you contract with, you know, just does that for you once a year or something like that to be nice. Is there is there activity within the business that generates income? So you look at a farmer, that field is growing during the time of the year that farmer's not doing a lot of work. He can hire someone to come in and do the physical labor and pay them and make a profit. He has options that a self-employed person doesn't. Now, again, I'm not shitting on being self-employed, but it's not entrepreneurship. It's a step in the right direction. And if you really want to be an entrepreneur, many times self-employment is the right step in the right direction, okay? But if you don't take it to the point where the very existence of the business in some ways generating revenue while you sleep, then you're not an entrepreneur. You're still just trading your time for money. And that's that's the best litmus test. If you're not doing nothing, can money still show up? The answer is no. You're self-employed. Hope that makes a lot of sense. And it's a great question for a young guy, you know, working his way through college to be asking and taking the time to even think about it. I challenge all of you to think about that, especially those of you that think you're entrepreneurs. Are you? Or are you just self-employed? And how can you, how can you cross the bridge? That might even make a really great standalone show topic someday. Hmm. I don't know. Won't be Tuesday, because Tuesday will be the 4th of July, and I will be blowing up a small piece of my country to celebrate it. Uh, yes, we have a fireworks stand less than a mile down the road, and we will be launching off great big giant fireworks. I will be feeding my family big copious helpings of burnt cow. And I hope you're doing something like that, too, and enjoying yourself. And please be responsible and safe if you are. So um, there will be no show on the 4th of July. I will have a rewind show for you on Monday. I will be back with a live show Wednesday. And, of course, we're not done this week. For some reason, it feels like a Friday because maybe I used to do these shows on Fridays. But we'll have the Expert Council show tomorrow. Um, with all that said, if you do like this show and you would like support the work that we do, one thing you can do is simply do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z dot com. You go to T-S-P-A-Z dot com. You do your online shopping there and it will benefit us here at the Survival Podcast. One of the things you can do when you get to T-S-P-A-Z dot com is you can click on the Amazon deals of the day. Go see what's going on over there and do any of your shopping that you would rather do on Amazon anyway and it helps support us. The other thing that you can do is take a look at our annual, our annual, our daily product reviews. I got a new one for you today. I got a new old one. I've never reviewed it before. But we've certainly talked about it. It is the Whistler XP800i 800-watt power inverter. Now, the reason I say it's a new, old one is Stephen Harrison and I have been recommending Whistler uh, inverters for a long time as a very low-cost but very reliable power inverter to power things. So what this does is you attach it to the battery terminals of your car, you turn the switch on, and you plug an extension cord into it, and you can run things in your house when the power's out. And in my review, I have a link to two episodes that I did with Stephen Harris where he goes basically how to power your whole house from your car. Okay, And these are a great way to do that. But they're also redesigned. The ones we used to recommend, they don't make anymore. This is the next generation of them. They look a little bit cooler, in my opinion. Um, But they now, one of the big differences, they have USB ports on them. They used to have one, now they have two. So you can charge two USB devices native while you're running these. Uh, I recommend that you mount them to a piece of wood, like a piece of 2x10 or 2x12 or a piece of thicker plywood that gives it some weight. And when you open the hood of your car and you set it somewhere there and attach it to your battery, it doesn't fall down and go clink, clink, clank, clank, clunk, bang, right? So that's, that's a pretty good little piece of advice. Um, but I think they're, they're like 48 55 or something like that uh, in cost. I don't think there's another product for sub-$50.00 that does as much for your preparedness as an 800-watt inverter from Whistler does. I think it's that good of a product. So if you haven't ever taken the step to get a power inverter, and I recommend you get two because two is one and one is none, um, I recommend you consider adding these to your preps. I really do. And I'll tell you another big reason for two beyond two is one and one is none. Most people have two cars to their household. That means you have two generators, and if you paid $35,000 for your car, you have a $35,000 generator sitting in your driveway while your power's out and your food's going bad in your refrigerator. Will one of these run a refrigerator? Okay, not every single refrigerator. It depends on the startup draw, the refrigerator itself. In most instances, it will. If you're going to rely on it, try it before you need to use it. But in most instances, you can have your car idling. You have this hooked up to your battery. You plug your refrigerator into it through an extension cord. It runs your refrigerator. You run your refrigerator for three or four hours. That includes your freezer, obviously. And then you run other stuff. You don't try to run a, your refrigerator and other stuff. It's called a high draw device. But at that, you know, you, when you unplug your refrigerator, since it's cooled down, it's going to hold temperature low really well. Throw some throw some blankets over. It, eat the ice cream, etc., and go on and do other things like charge all your batteries to run all your other small devices, charge your computers, run a few LED lights and things like that, and pick and choose where you go as far as what you're using. Now, there's some negative reviews on it. Like one guy said, "I can't believe it! I paid all this money for this. Again, it's 50 bucks. It won't run my microwave. That's because you're an idiot." That's why it won't run your microwave because you're an idiot. It, actually, it won't run your microwave for a reason, but you're an idiot so you can't understand it. So 800 watt inverter, and most microwaves draw at least 1100 watts of power. You got a bit of a delta there, moron, so it's not going to work, right? So it's usually or uh, it doesn't. The terminals don't look like the ones in the picture. Well, that's because you ordered 1200 watt inverter instead of 800 watt inverter, and you don't know what you've done. Things like that. Um, on the another note, it's a mass produced electronic device. Sometimes, they fail. They just do. Um, Sometimes, and there are some legitimate negative reviews, I got one out of the box dead. That's why I love Amazon. Return it and get a new one. Cost you not a dime. Uh, Test your equipment. Use your equipment. Become familiar with your equipment. And if you do that, you'll be able to rely on your equipment with a great deal of reliability. And again, sub 50 bucks. I don't know anything it does for your preps, what a good Whistler inverter does. Okay, so it is now time for the song of the day. Um... This is by a band called Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And when I saw that, I was like, that's awesome. And then I saw the name of the song that John Adam picked out for today. It was American Dream. I'm like, I didn't know they did a song called American Dream. And I thought it was like probably about like the, the, the American Dream or the vanishing American Dream or something like that. And then I found the song and played it and went, oh, I don't just know that song. When I was a little, I'm a little kid, I loved this song. I didn't know what the hell it was about. I, I just loved the way that I'm talking like 1979 when it came out. It was on the radio like crazy, and I was a little kid. I would have been five. I loved this song. I used to sing it. Didn't even have the words right. Had everything all messed up, but I liked it. And as I got older, I really liked it. And it, it, being a Jimmy Buffett fan, this is like this is one of those many country songs where I think people are trying to get Jimmy Buffett's attention, even all the way back then, because it just it just plays and sounds and is basically a Jimmy Buffett song sung by a, a pretty-dad-gone-good country group. Um, let me tell you a little bit about this song, though. An American Dream is a song written by Rodney Crowell. He recorded it under the title Voila, in American Dream. I always thought it was Voila when I was a kid, by the way. I didn't know it was Voila. I didn't know French. On his 1978 album Ain't Living Long Like This and released it on the B-side to that album single, Now and then there's a fool such as I. It was later recorded by American country group Nitty Gritty Dirt Man. I'm reading off Wikipedia, now I'm going to add my own little inflection here. And then people cared, because no one cared when Rodney Crowell recorded this at all. Uh, It was released in November 1979 as the only single and title track from the album American Dream. The song reached number 58 on Billboard Hot Country Singles and Tracks chart, but peaked at number 13 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's version features a backing vocal from Linda Ronstadt, or as Howard Stern used to call her, Linda Ronfat. Um, the labels on some of the 45 RPM records were reversed, so the American Dream was labeled Take Me Back and vice versa. Okay, so um, so that's kind of the history of the song. Let's talk a little bit about some of the lyrics. There's not a lot of like really high-level poetry going on here. This is just a cool song says, I beg your pardon, Mama, what did you say? My mind was drifting off on Martinique Bay. It's not that I'm not interested, you see. Augusta, Georgia is just no place to be. I think Jamaican in the moonlight. Sandy beaches drinking rum every night. We got no money, Mama, but we can go. We'll split the difference, go to Coconut Grove. Which I assume must be a restaurant or a bar or something like that. And um what I like about this song is basically the concept is we can have whatever it's as easy as closing your eyes. And a lot of the experiences we think of that we want to have from a vacation or a lot of other things that cost a lot of money, we can get a lot of that experience and joy and enjoyment, you know, without actually spending the money. Now, I don't think there's really a substitute for white sand beaches and crystal blue water. I don't think any parrot head worth is salt would tell you that there is. But there's points in life where we do have to settle for what's available for now so that later we can have great things. And then sometimes song just sounds cool. It's just good music. And this one was And this is this would be one of the earliest, if you think about it, crossover country songs. Why? Well what did I tell you about the song? It reached number uh, 58 on the Hot Country Singles and Tracks chart. okay, But it came all the way up to number 13 on the general Hot 100, basically pop music. It did better as a pop song than a country song. I think it's because people really did like Jimmy Buffett a lot by 1978, and he had made inroads into pop music as well, even though I wouldn't call his music pop. And here you go. An American Dream. Written by Rodney Crowell and performed by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even
1: if they don't.
3: off on Martinique Bay It's not that I'm not interested, you see Augusta, Georgia is just no place to be I think you make Out of my ear I feel a tropical vacation this year Might be the answer to this hillbilly beard I think you're in the moonlight Sandy beaches drinking rum every night We got no money, mama, but we can go We'll split the difference, go to Coke rain falling down. I think a tropical vacation this year might be the answer to this hillbill appearance. Voila, an American dream. Yeah, we can travel, girl, without any means. When it's as easy